0: So we've all got questions, and we're all looking for answers to those questions, and YouTube is a great place to find answers to some of those very questions. I mean, just this past week, uh, our uh, oven at at our apartment started making this just really obnoxious beeping noise, and it just would not turn off, and the clock displayed uh, error F11. It's like, I I don't know anything about what that means. So I got on YouTube, guess what? There's a whole bunch of videos on how to solve error code F11 on a stove. So I looked it up, I was able to fix it, it's great. Stove doesn't make this annoying beep noise anymore. And so we can, you know, get on YouTube or search on the internet for all kinds of, you know, solutions, whether it's how do you fix the TV, how do you fix this error code, you know, how do you change a tire, how do you do this, how do you do that? Uh, But sometimes we're looking for answers to questions that are a lot more complicated than than just, like, an error code or something like that. Sometimes we're looking for answers to deeper questions like, you know, how do I I overcome an addiction? How do I deal with my anxiety? How, you know, what do I do if I feel really lonely all the time? We look for answers to these kinds of questions, and sometimes we can find videos or articles with some, some good advice or some helpful tips. But even with all of that, it still doesn't ultimately solve the problem. It may give you a little help, a little advice, but what we're looking for is something a lot deeper. We actually need a problem to be resolved. So we don't just need a little bit of help or a little bit of band-aid. We need a a fix. And so can we find an actual solution to those problems and those challenges, and where could you even find that? And so it's no surprise that Jesus offers the answer to all those kinds of questions that we're looking for. And I know that may sound a little... Cliché, like, okay, Jesus is the answer to everything. All right, Sunday school answer, whatever. But it is really true. And yes, at the same time, Jesus is not, you know, he's not a force field that just suddenly protects you from everything or immediately makes you perfect. But he is someone that has the answers that we are all looking for. He offers peace when we have chaos in our lives. He offers a stable foundation when we don't know who we are. And so we have to trust that Jesus is the one who really has the answers that we're looking for. And so during this three-week series called Following Jesus, we're going to be looking at some of those first invitations that Jesus offered to his disciples. And we're going to take a look at what that teaches us about what it really means to follow Jesus and what that looks like. Because Jesus really does have the answers that we've all been looking for. And we can find that in how his first disciples found him. So there's a really helpful story in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, starting starting in verse 43, if you want to turn there. John chapter 1, verse 43. And this is just one story of several different stories that are kind of like this, that follow this pattern. But here's, here's what happens. It says, The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite, in whom there is no deceit. Well, how do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, well, I, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. So when, when Philip finds Jesus, he's pretty excited about this, and so the, only thing, the first thing he's got to do is go, go tell his brother nathaniel about hey i think we found the messiah we found him but nathaniel's a little skeptical he's like okay really are are you sure about that there have been all kinds of people who have claimed to be the messiah and none of that's worked out are you sure this is the guy it's like and besides nazareth nazareth this is backwater town nothing you know nothing really great comes out of nazareth it's on a back road nobody cares about nazareth no one pays any attention uh, since, since moving here, whenever I meet somebody, I guess this is like Adair County, because I, ever, whenever someone's like, I'm from Adair County, we're all a bunch of troublemakers out there. So I don't know if that's how people think about Adair County or not, but it's like that idea of there's this town, there's this place, there's this location, where it's like, oh, there's just a bunch of troublemakers out that way. You know, no, don't worry about that. So he's just like, he's from Nazareth. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. And then when he finally meets Jesus and begins to talk to him, he realizes, oh, you are the guy. You're the guy we've all been waiting for. You're him. And so he suddenly he goes from being skeptical to believing, "This, this is him. Wow, something good can come out of Nazareth. And we see in John's gospel, just even in the first chapter, Jesus is called a number of different things. When John the Baptist first sees Jesus at a distance, he says about him, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And a little later, he's called, he's called a rabbi. He's called Messiah, the one, Jesus, the one that Moses wrote about. He's called the Son of God. He's called the King of Israel. All these titles that really made sense to those people who were looking for him. And to us, you know, once we've studied the Bible and we, we learn enough about Israel, those, those titles begin to make sense. But in another way, it's, they don't totally make sense to us. Because each of those titles come with them certain hopes and expectations of what Jesus was going to do. And so, you know, we could take each one of those titles and we could unpack them a whole lot. But, you know, just to to sum it up and maybe oversimplify it a little bit, all those titles mean that they expect Jesus is going to be the one who will restore Israel to her former glory. He's going to get rid of the Romans that are in charge of them right now, so somehow through, you know, politics and through military, he's going to kick out the Romans, and he's going to make Israel this wonderful, powerful, protected nation again. So they have all kinds of things they're thinking Jesus is going to do, and these names reveal what those first disciples, what they were looking for, and how they connected what they were looking for with Jesus. Because you know, Philip doesn't come to Nathaniel and say, Nathaniel, I found an incredibly skilled carpenter, which Jesus was a carpenter. But that's not what Nathaniel was looking for. He wasn't looking for a great carpenter to do some handiwork around the house. He was looking for the Messiah. And so what, what do you see in Jesus? That's my first question for us. What do you see in Jesus? Maybe you see forgiveness of sins that Jesus has to come to earth, to die in our place on the cross, to die for our sins that we can be forgiven. Maybe you see in Jesus hope, hope in eternal life, hope in heaven, hope in a future, hope in an identity that's better than anything you could do on your own. Maybe you see Jesus as guidance. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the light, he's the person who helps you understand where to go and what to do next. Maybe in Jesus you see love, a person who accepts you as you are, and cares deeply for you and wants the best for you. Maybe you see in Jesus freedom, freedom from shame, from guilt, from an addiction, from a troubled past. Maybe that's what you see in Jesus. There are so many things that we could look for and see in Jesus, and the first followers of Jesus were looking for the exact same things. They just used the language of, look, we found the Messiah. Look, we found the King of Israel look, I think we found the guy we've been waiting for, the guy Moses talked about. That's the language they use to talk about hope and freedom and guidance and forgiveness. And we see this happen over and over again in different places, and just in John's gospel alone. In fact, in John chapter 4, John meets a woman in the region of Samaria, and he meets her, and she's, she's got a very complicated backstory that Jesus begins to uh, sort of uncover, and she's had a number of ex-husbands, and she's currently living with a guy who's not her husband, and John never really tells us whose fault it is, like we never know if it's, if it's her or if it's just one guy after another just kind of was done with her and passed her off, we just don't know, but we do know that she, she seems to feel a lot of shame, and she comes out to a well to get water at the worst possible time of the day, Probably to avoid people. And when she hears about Jesus and she meets him and she talks to him and she goes back into town, this is what she says in John chapter 4, verse 29. She says, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. She doesn't say, Come see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. She doesn't say, Come see the king of Israel. She says, Come see a man who knows everything i've ever done and some of you would be like "Ooh, i hope he doesn't know everything i like everything surely not everything jesus there's a few things in the closet i'd like you to not look at but that's that's how she describes that what she was looking for she found in jesus she found love and acceptance in he knows everything i've ever done and he didn't treat me like the rest of you have been treating me you got to come meet this guy and so what do you see in jesus but perhaps the deeper question is, what does Jesus see in you? What does he see in you? Because maybe you're scared that Jesus will see you exactly like everybody else sees you. And that wouldn't be too much of an improvement. You know, and I don't, I don't know, maybe you've, you've been told some hurtful things in your life. People have, have said things about you like, oh, you're, you're lazy, you're a failure, you're not going to amount to anything. Or maybe when you, maybe it's not just what others see in you, but how you see yourself. And when you look at yourself in the mirror, there are certain things that you, you just tell yourself that are pretty, pretty mean, pretty hurtful. Like maybe you, you look at yourself and you just go, man, I'm, I'm just a failure. I, I can't believe I keep messing up. I keep making mistakes. I keep trying. It doesn't work out. Maybe you look at yourself in the mirror and you wish you, wish you could lose some more weight and you think, man, I don't, I don't think I look all that attractive. I just wish I could do this or do that differently maybe you look in the mirror and you just think to yourself oh, i feel like i'm failing as a mom i feel like i'm a terrible husband i don't know what it is that maybe people have said to you or you just tell yourself and that's what you see but what does jesus see in you when he looks at you what does he see because if we go back to our story in john chapter 1 with nathaniel what jesus says as nathaniel approaches is here truly is an israelite in whom there is no deceit what a kind thing to say to a guy who if jesus saw him under the fig tree jesus also knows nathaniel said nazareth nothing good comes out of nazareth and yet he doesn't say hey dude respect my hometown he instead says ah here's an israelite who's truly honest authentic you know what you're going to get with nathaniel and of course I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us what people thought of Nathaniel. I don't know. I don't know if this was meaningful, Nathaniel, because people thought differently of him or, or what. But Jesus in that moment spoke truth and identity in Nathaniel. He didn't see a guy who was kind of skeptical about Jesus and not sure what to make of him. He saw a guy who, ah, here's a guy who there's no, there's no deceit. Nathaniel couldn't lie to you if he tried. That's the kind of man that this is. And just before this particular story, Jesus finds Peter. Of course, at that time, he's called Simon. And what does he do? He changes Simon's name to Peter. And names back then have power because na- all names have meaning. You know, I don't know if you've like, ever looked up what your actual name means and maybe you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. Other times you might be like, oh, thanks, Mom and Dad. That's lame. But back then, your name really meant your identity. It was a huge character part of you. And so Simon can mean some version of like, I've been heard or, you know, I listen or you need to listen to me. It can mean something like that. But Peter then means rock. So upon first meeting Peter, Jesus decides, here's a guy that you could build something on. Here's a guy that's like a rock, reliable, a strong foundation, And if you know Peter's story, you know he's not a very great rock sometimes. Like, he's a little wobbly and unstable sometimes. But Jesus, in that moment, he saw Peter exactly the way he was. He saw Peter for all the good in him and all the bad in him, and he saw through all that bad to what he could be. He knew Peter. I'm going to name you. You're, You're like a rock. And that's what Jesus sees in us. He sees, yes, he sees everything you've ever done, the good and the bad, but he sees who you can become through him. And so he doesn't call you by your failures. He calls you by who you really are. He calls you by the good in you. And so he knows how to help transform you and how to change you, and he can encourage you because he sees who you really are. And what we can learn from these disciples and their interactions when it comes to following Jesus is, is how to be a come-and-see church. Because invita- this invitation is just so simple. Nathaniel's a little skeptical. Well, Nathaniel, just, just come and see for yourself. all right? Instead of me trying to like defend and argue and all that, just, just come see Jesus on your own, and you decide. That's the easy invitation, and it happens over and over through the Gospels. They just say, come and see Jesus. Just come for yourself. Take a look. You decide. And there are different ways that we can be a come-and-see church, which just means we speak about Jesus in a way that people can come and they can understand him, and they can decide for themselves if they really want to follow him or not. So here's two particular ways that we can be a come-and-see church. And the first is pretty obvious. It's just what these guys were doing. It's just you invite people. You just invite people to church. That, that easy. You invite them to just come-and-see Jesus. You don't worry so much about trying to you know, get, get through all the apologetic arguments or try to you know, convince them about the, the reliability of the Bible. It's just, hey, why don't you just come and meet Jesus? You, you decide. You let the presence of Jesus handle the rest. But a good way to do this means you can't assume what somebody needs. You have to listen to what they really need. And you connect their need with Jesus. Because that's what these first followers did. They said, hey, Look, the Lamb of God. Because some people, they need the Lamb of God. They need their sin taken away. Some people, they're looking for the King of Israel. So look, we, we think we found the King of Israel. And so connect people's needs to Jesus. And the great thing is Jesus meets every need. So you just have to find, well, how does Jesus meet this person's need? It may not make a whole lot of sense to say to somebody, you know, hey, you just, you just really need to you know, meet Jesus right now because you need to be saved from your sins. They may go, ah, I, I, don't know, I don't know if I really believe in sin. I don't know about all that. But if you listen carefully and you pick up that, you know, that this lady happens to really struggle with anxiety, and you wonder, did Jesus say anything about anxiety? Well, he did. So why don't you come and see a person who can give you peace even when you're anxious? You've, tri- you've tried counseling. You've tried doctors. You know, you can keep doing that. But why don't, you, why don't you come meet someone who says he can truly give you peace? What do you got to lose? And you listen for what people need, and you just connect that to who Jesus already is. And I know that we we happen to live in a community with lots and lots of churches and lots and lots of people who are already Christians and already go to lots of churches. So you may wonder, well, there's some people who still need to come and see Jesus, but there's a lot of people who maybe just need to be challenged to really follow Jesus. And we'll talk about that more in the next couple of weeks about what that looks like. But the first thing to do is just invite people. The second thing you can do is be flexible. And here's why. Did you know that in our worship service every Sunday morning, there are five generations represented? And that is a little bit of a new thing in church because as people are living longer and as culture is changing so rapidly, their generations are defined by shorter amounts of time. So before it was 20-plus years, you have a generation And then with the millennials, my generation, it was 15 years. And now they're thinking, we might need to go by it like every 10 years and maybe every five years. Who knows? So there's five generations in this church. Now, here's what that means. Uh, It means every generation has a slightly different language and a little different expectation. So some of you listen to one of my sermons and go, I didn't get that. That was weird. It's probably because I wasn't specifically talking to your age group. And some of you go, man, that was an awesome sermon. And hopefully it's because I was talking to your age group, but also because of the Holy Spirit. And so think about it this way. Even though I write my sermon every week in English, I have to think about five different cultural languages in my sermon. So, I, so there are certain illustrations that work really well for some of you, that will, you. Some of you would be like, what? You'd roll your eyes, you wouldn't get it. It's just like how if every sermon I just had a sports illustration, some of you would love that, and others of you would be like, dude, I don't, I don't care about the NFL. Stop with the Patrick Mahomes stories. We get it. He's cool, whatever. And so you have to recognize that sometimes you've got to change language a little bit. It's, it's sort of like this. Imagine if God called you to be a missionary to a country where everyone speaks Spanish. Okay, everybody speaks Spanish. If you decided, you know, my strategy is going to be I'm going to teach everyone English. Then I'll tell them the gospel. That's really, really hard. Good luck. It would be so much easier to say, I will learn Spanish so I can communicate the gospel in Spanish. And you might find some some metaphors and some ways that work in uh, that Spanish-speaking country that wouldn't necessarily click here in America and vice versa. And that's what I mean by be flexible because when we do things a certain way, like if we just do things like the 60s or like it's the 80s or like it's the 90s or even like it's the early 2000s, some people will get that. Some people will not get that. And I bet some of you have experienced this with your kids or your grandkids is you'll start to talk about something or say something and you can just see their eyes are rolling and they're kind of like, whatever, they're like, you d-? and they say, you don't understand me. And you go, well, you'll, maybe you'll, under- you'll understand when you're older. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Because every generation sees the world just a little bit differently. And when that generation grows up, they still might see the world differently than you see it. And so they may say, like, yeah, I don't get why grandma and grandpa were, like, I don't understand why they cared so much about that thing. And just the world's just a little bit different. And so we have five generations in our church, and number six is in the kids area right now. And so there's this constant adaptability and flexibility to communicate the gospel in ways that people will understand especially in a way that different generations will understand. Because we've got to help communicate the gospel to everybody. And some people need to hear it put just just a little bit different way. They need to hear a little bit of a different connection point. And so that can create some, some real challenges for some, but that's why it's good to be flexible and adaptable and listen to the culture and understand, how can we speak about Jesus in a way that will make sense? In a way that's going to track with people, and that takes a lot of work and a lot of listening. And not every church has that challenge. There are some churches out there that they don't really have a whole lot of younger people. The average age of the congregation is—you know—I've preached in those churches before, where the youngest person is is me, and then the next youngest person is 82. And so it's like, okay, all right, this this, this is the reality. And there are other churches that that you're like, man, there's not a lot of gray hair in this room. What's going on? And usually it's because maybe it's the neighborhood, maybe it's the community, but sometimes it's that older church just never changed and never adapted, and the young people didn't connect, and so they all went somewhere else. And then another church just does everything for the that's brand new and everything that works for the young people, and the older people go, eh, like, why don't we do any hymns? Like, can we just have one hymn once a month? Can we, you know... And the older folks get a little disconnected and they leave too. So it's hard to do both. But we have to be flexible to communicate to all the different generations. Uh, so one time, oh man, when in my years of doing internships and being at different churches, one pastor told me this story and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm glad that didn't happen to you. But uh, he said there was a church, one of his Sunday school classes in his church one Sunday. Um, instead of doing their normal Bible study, they had a very serious meeting. Because that pastor and the staff had decided to change worship, and they went from the hymnals to a worship band. And this particular Sunday school class did not like the music. It had been about, about a month, month and a half, and they just didn't like it. And so they were talking back and forth and having a very serious conversation about, you know, why, aren't we, why, why don't we just, we just should just stick with hymns and hymnals, there's nothing wrong with that, why did we change, why we got rid of the choir, we're not using the organ as much, and they were, not, they were not thrilled about that. And so they decided they had to do something about it. So as a class, they agreed. Next Sunday at worship, when the new worship leader invited everybody to stand and worship, they were going to stand and walk out the door. And they're like, that'll show them. And then they said, and then we'll write a letter to the pastor and the elders, and we'll, we'll all sign it, to tell them that they they have to get rid of this new worship leader and they have to change the worship back to hymnals or else. And so as they went around the room and talked, one guy in the class sat quietly, never said a word. So the class president turned to him and said, Mr. Dabney, you've been pretty quiet. What do you you think? And Mr. Dabney was an elder at this church. And he started off, well, you know, I'm not a big fan of the new music either. It's not my preference. I don't really love it. I kind of miss... Some of those hymns, wish we do more often, and the whole class is not like, yes, we've got an elder on our side, we can make this happen, we've got some real traction here. Then, of course, he said, but, I'm like, oh, no, what, but what? I said, but, you know, I've noticed a lot of younger people in church, and I've seen them worshiping, like, just, just with all this energy enthusiasm, and that just makes me so excited It's like, any of you notice some younger people, they've been, they've been going down front, and there's even been some people they don't dress like us, they don't look like us, but they've been showing up at church and they've been talking to the pastors about joining and serving and getting baptized. It's like, I just can't help but think, what if that was my grandson? Or what if that was your granddaughter? It's like, yeah, yeah, I I miss the way we used to do it, but I love those people a whole lot more. And I think it's good what we're doing. And everybody else in the class kind of sat in silence and looked at each other awkwardly. And the next Sunday at church, when the worship leader said, would you stand and worship? They stood and they worshiped. And change is hard. Change is difficult. But you got to decide what you love more. Do you love the way you do it? Or do you love the people you're reaching with the way that you do it? And it all begins with this very simple invitation, come and see. Come and see Jesus. And we want to make sure that when you come and see Jesus, you will understand Jesus. That we're going to listen to you. We're going to try to do it in such a way that that we will help connect Jesus with you. Because those first disciples, they knew Jesus was who they were looking for. He had the answers. And people need forgiveness of their sins. They need eternal life. They need hope. They need joy. They need peace. They need an identity. They need a firm foundation and so much more. And so we want Jesus to be the person that they get to come and see, and that we do everything we can to help them understand this is who Jesus is, and he can meet your need. And those needs change. Like right now, mental health is a huge deal. So people need to hear more than ever, Jesus is peace in your anxiety. Jesus gives you hope when you feel like ending your life. Jesus gives you freedom when you feel trapped in sadness. Jesus is your best friend when you feel lonely. And they need to know that that's truth. It's not just a a cliche thing, but it's real. And so sometimes we got to think about our role here, just like being a missionary. And even though we all speak English, there's a little bit of a different language that goes on. And sometimes just like how words change over time, and maybe you said a word, and you've seen like your grandparents go, what? What did you just say? And you go, what? That's not a bad word. Or sometimes your grandparents said something like, Grandma, you can't say that. That happens because language changes. And so we just have to make sure that we communicate so that people can understand who Jesus is and how he meets their needs. Because being a come and see church matters because people matter to God. And this is how God communicates with his people. Why is the Bible written in Hebrew and Greek? Because the people at that time knew Hebrew and Greek. Why, why, you know, when Jesus came to earth nearly 2,000 years ago, he came not as an animal or a ghost, but as a human. So we would, so we could understand. He talked like everybody else. He dressed like everybody else. He did all the things. He paid taxes like everybody else. He went to synagogue like everybody else. He did the things that a Middle Eastern Jew back then would do. And if, if God decided that instead he sent his son in 2023 to America, Jesus would dress like us, and he would talk like us, and he would, I don't know, maybe he'd have a TikTok account, you know, but Jesus would just, he would just fit right in so we could understand what God is like. And so we have to be able to be an invitational church, but also a flexible church, because it used to be, you know, at one time in America, you could assume everybody Everybody knew, knew at least something about heaven and hell and sin, and they generally understood that. And most people, the goal of life was to be a good person. And they knew, eh, I'm not really a good person, so I need some help. And so you could preach a sermon around those ideas and those topics, and you could have revivals because that met people where they were. But now you can assume the opposite. Most non-Christians don't necessarily believe in a heaven or a hell or sin, and... Being good's kind of up for debate, and I'm not even, and, and most of them aren't even sure the church is good. They're not; they're a little suspicious of the church as an institution. And so, just like that missionary deciding, you know what, I'm going to teach everybody English and then preach them the gospel. You can try to, you know, try to convince that person that heaven exists and hell exists and sin is real. So now you should come and see Jesus, right? Or you can just figure out how the language they're already talking. Oh, you need Jesus to help you with your loneliness. Oh, you need Jesus because you're chasing an idol. Oh, you need Jesus because your happiness is built on things that won't last. Oh, you need Jesus because, and when you connect that to somebody, you help them see Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm just asking you to be more open to how Jesus works. And if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm asking you to come and see him. Just come and see him. Meet him in his presence, listen to what he has to say, and see what he has to say about you. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus. I thank you, God, that when you came to earth, you came in such a way that we could understand you. You talked like us, you dressed like us. And I'm thankful, God, that you continue to find ways to communicate to us so that we can understand who you are because you care about having a relationship with us. And so you want us to understand all that you offer, the abundant life that Jesus said that he has for all of us. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray you would help us to listen closely to the people around us, that you would give us eyes to see uh, their needs, both physical and spiritual and that you would give us the words to say to help connect people with what they're searching for and connect that to Jesus. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.